Welcome. If you, uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in uh, Genesis chapter 6, but we're actually going to be in Genesis 6 through 9 today. And um, if you've seen your notes uh, in your bulletin, you see that we have a lot of work to get done today, okay? And so we're not going to read the entirety of 6, 7, 8, and 9, uh, but we are going to read a, a, a pretty good chunk uh, this morning. Before we get started, I want to say a very happy anniversary to my wife, Joy. 22 years this week, and um, she is definitely the better part of me, definitely the better looking part of me. I told her if she sits here, I may be distracted this morning, but um, I'm so thankful uh, to be able to be here this morning and share with you. Uh, let's turn to the screen, let's look to the Lord's Prayer, and let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, Father, we do want to ask for your special concentrated presence this morning over your people. We pray for the power and the anointing of your Holy Spirit to speak through your word. And I pray just as Jesus said that he would send a comforter, he also said the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And I want to pray, Father, that you will speak to us in individual and personal ways that we may receive all that you have for us. We ask for your help this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. This morning, we are going to kind of jump back uh, into the earliest parts of human history as we know it, and we are going to be uh, focusing on the life of Noah, and we're going to be talking about the events of the flood. And I want to say before we uh, get into this, this morning, we're going to be using the flood, in, in many ways, we're going to be using the flood as a metaphor for difficulty. Okay, uh, it's similar to if somebody asks you how you're doing and you say, well, I'm just going through a storm right now. Uh, similar, uh, we will be using the flood to, in, in kind of a metaphoric sense. But I want to make sure that, that I'm clear in stating that even though we're using the flood as a metaphor, we are not using the flood as an allegory. We're not using the flood as this uh, mythological, um, you know, supposed event that really didn't happen. It was just a story to teach us things. Uh, at Christian Life, we believe that all of the events of the Bible happen. We believe that all of the people in Scripture lived. And so um, even the things that we may deem as outstanding or astonishing, sometimes crazy, we believe that the God of the universe can do it all. And so um, I want to make that clear. We believe that these events actually happen. We believe that these people actually lived. Now, before we get to the text this morning, I want to give you a little bit of a background. I want to give you some, some context so that you can understand when we jump into the text, you'll understand where we are in, in human history. Um, the flood event takes place about 15 to 1600 years from what we can gather, about 1500 years after the events of the Garden of Eden. Okay, And so what you're going to see as we read some of this text, you're going to see people who lived extended lives. So their lifespans may be uh, six, seven, eight hundred years at some points. Um, but that's because 
the world before the flood was very different than the world that we live in today. Uh, the atmosphere was altered to such a great degree and to avoid getting into the, all the, the technical and biological uh, rationale behind that, um, it's just important to understand that the world looked different and human lifespan looked different before the flood. Following the flood, you see this dramatic drop-off in, in lifespans, okay? So we're dealing with events prior to the flood when people were living for hundreds and hundreds of years. And what we're going to do is we're going to give most of our attention today to two family lineages, okay? We're going to talk on the first hand about uh, the, the family line of a man named Cain. Now, you remember in the opening chapters of Genesis, Cain has a brother, may have been his twin brother, named Abel. They get into a dispute. Cain grows uh, jealous. He grows angry. He rises up against his brother Abel. He strikes him down. He murders his brother. The Lord immediately comes and confronts Cain over uh, the death. And Scripture says that the Lord basically banished uh, Cain from the area his parents were living. Scripture actually says that then Cain left the presence of the Lord. So Cain goes and he begins to build this civilization. He has uh, buildings and there's architecture. Scripture says that there's musicianship and the arts. Um, there's herding. There's all of this kind of thing that as uh, Cain begins to uh, procreate and there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of children over the hundreds of years of his life that they build this entire civilization. It's incredible to think that uh, these people, although they lived in an ancient world, they were incredibly advanced in some of their thought, their ingenuity, their creativity. They were incredibly advanced people. So we know a little bit about who they were and, and how they lived as people, but Scripture more specifically doesn't speak to all of that. It just gives us an inkling of that. But what Scripture speaks most to with the Cainites is the wickedness of their hearts, that they had no desire to serve the Lord, that they went off and they did their own thing in a world that was far away from God. The second line that we're going to speak to today is, is of, the le excuse me, of the lineage of the Sethites. It's, it's uh, the brother that was born to Cain after Cain killed Abel. So Adam and Eve, they had two boys. One of them died. And so scripture says that they had another son. His name was Seth as a means of, uh, in some ways, I guess, replacing Abel as their son. And so Seth sets out and he develops his own civilization. He has children upon children upon children. And through the course of time, he develops um, uh, land and, and cities. What we learn, though, is that there's a very distinct difference between these two family lines. The, the, the Canaanites who go and they develop a civilization and they're wicked, we learn that the Sethites kind of go off and they're more of gatherers and they cultivate land and, you know, in many ways they, they kind of struggle. They're not big into architecture and the arts and all these kind of things. But again, more distinctly than all of that, the Lord speaks about the Sethites' condition of their heart. The Bible says that with the Sethites, when they had gathered and they had built together, that they were the first people to worship the Lord their God by name. 
And so we see these two very distinct groups of people, these two different family lines and the direction that they're going, not only, you know, uh, civilly, but the direction that they're going spiritually. The Bible speaks so clearly to the contrast between these two family lines. It starts with, with Cain and it starts with Seth and it goes seven different layers, seven generations down. And it builds this contrast between these two different men. For the Canaanites, there was a man by the name of Lamech. Lamech was a polygamist. He was a murderer. He was filled with pride. He was materialistic. He's not the dude you want to hang out with a whole lot, for most people at least. So the Bible paints this very vivid description of who Lamech is. But then the seventh generation from Seth speaks of a man named Enoch. And the description of Enoch is short and sweet and simply says this, that Enoch walked with God. And so you have these two lines that are going in very different directions spiritually. But ultimately what happens over the course of more than a thousand years is that this line of the Sethites ultimately begin to veer towards the line of the Canaanites. They begin to intermarry, they begin to adapt their culture, and ultimately generation as they exceed, they begin to become more and more wicked, just like the line of Cain. And ultimately what we find is that though these two family lines began in different directions and this one kind of merged with the wicked, we find out of the life of Seth, out of the line of Seth, that there is one family from his tribe that remains righteous. And it's the family of a man by the name of Noah. And so this is where the text picks up here in your notes, chapter 6. The Bible says this. It says, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, or Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he faithfully walked with God. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make for yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you were to build it. And then the Lord goes on and gives very detailed instructions of how to build the ark. Following that, the Lord says, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, I will, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark. You and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. And Noah did everything just as God had commanded. 
Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. And in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on the day that all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. For 40 days the flood kept coming on earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and greatly increased. All the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered, over 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on the land perished. Only Noah was left and those with him on the ark. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed. The water receded steadily from the earth. And after Noah had sent out the raven and the dove, one time. The scripture then says that then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent out the dove again, but this time the dove did not return to him. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then, no, then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your family, your wives, your sons, and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you so that they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. Following this, the Lord issues a covenant with Noah, the rainbow covenant, where he promises to never destroy the earth and creation with, with the flood again, with waters. And scripture begins to wrap up Noah's life in, in chapter 9, and at one point, scripture reminds us that Noah was a man of the soil, and he proceeded to plant a vineyard. And when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. Uh, most of you know that uh, my wife and I, we grew up in northwest Florida. We grew up um, in a town outside of the city of Pensacola, Florida, and being in the panhandle of Florida, right there on the Gulf Coast, um, we were very accustomed to severe weather, you know, hurricanes and, you know, storm fronts that would come through and different things like that. But um, as, a, as a little guy, I was burdened, I was paralyzed with the fear of severe weather for whatever reason. Um, I, uh, for, for whatever reason, I was specifically uh, distraught by the idea of a tornado coming to my house, right? I mean, I just, I was convinced that although God may have a plan for my life and a destiny and he wants to fulfill X, Y, Z, when we get to Z, I'm going to die death by a tornado, right? I, I was just convinced that this is the end for me. And uh, as strange it is, as it is, even as a little one, I loved watching Storm Chasers, which is so ironic, right? I don't know what's going on in my mind. My, one of my favorite movies was Twister, you know, where the tornado, I don't know, there's something wrong up here. But um, the point is, is that as, as, a, as a young little guy, I was paralyzed with fear. 
And there were moments where I couldn't go to school. There were uh, times where my dad, when he would travel in and out uh, of town, and there were times where, like, I, I, I just, I wouldn't go out and play. I wouldn't do anything. I was paralyzed with the fear that something like this was going to come upon me. And so, um, you know how it is with, with childhood fears. Usually, um, they, they dissipate. Usually, you kind of grow out of that, and you understand reality in a different way. And that, that pretty much happened for me um, as I grew up. Um, but then in, in 2004, I was, I was in my 20s. I was already married, had a kid. And um, the, that fear had kind of subsided in my life. And in September of that year, Hurricane Ivan hit Pensacola. It was almost a direct hit on, on Pensacola. Now, Joy and I had already, um, we were already living in Panama City. It was over 100 miles away, okay? So the, 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 you know, the most intense part of the storm was more than 100 miles away from us. Um, and so uh, we, we decided, because it was a pretty significant storm, depending on how you do the measurements, it was a Category 3 or 4 storm. And so we knew we weren't going to be a direct hit, but we knew we were going to get some stuff. And, and um, let's just say the house we were living in, in was not exactly sturdy, okay? Um, like the second or third day we lived there, I was working in the yard and I went and I got a shower and in the middle of the shower, I fell through the floor and, um, you know, sunlight's coming in and, you know, dirt and everything. Anyway, it was, so, so, so when the hurricane was coming, I told Joy, I said, we can't stay here, right? We can't stay here. If, if this house can't handle my body weight, we got issues when 130 mile an hour winds come. And um, so... We decided to go to a friend's house, and uh, we stayed overnight. They were, they were super accommodating for us and everything, and uh, the, the friend's house was, was a sturdy home. I mean, it was, it was definitely a, a lot more stable than ours. Um, but in the middle of the night, something phenomenal happened. We were phenomenal in the worst way. Um, we were in the house, and in the most intense part of the storm, if you've ever ridden out a hurricane, you know that the howling winds are just eerie. There is like, uh, there is, there is uh, something to that, you know, and in the midst of it, we're hearing all this, and all of a sudden, it felt like the house began to breathe. It's almost like it was contracting, and I've heard all these stories about, you know, I've been watching storm chasers for the last 20 years of my life. And I hear all these stories about when severe weather comes, if you're in a house, if you don't open a window, if there's not ventilation, the house is just going to implode and just, you know, you're going to die in the midst of it. And I'm sitting there in the midst of the hurricane. I'm thinking, well, this is it, Lord. This is it. I'm, uh, I'm so thankful I was able to get married, but the end has come, you know. And um, I remember in the midst of that, that paralyzing fear just, whew, it just kind of overcame me again. And it was in one of those moments where it was just like, you don't know what to do, you don't know where to go, you don't know what's right, you don't know what's wrong, you're just kind of stuck in one of those moments. And just like in any hurricane or natural disaster that you have, usually the, um, the National Weather Service will usually um, come in and they will talk to you before the storm, during the storm, after the storm. They'll give you different instructions. Um, for instance, before the storm, they will usually say, look, if you live in this area, you need to evacuate now, right? And they'll, they'll usually give you several days to, to clear out. They'll say evacuate now. But there's always a time where their language changes. 
And instead of saying, look, if you live in this area, you need to evacuate now, their language changes to, if you live in this area and you have not evacuated, stay where you are. Because you don't want to find yourself in a place stuck where you're trapped and you don't know what to do and you can't get out of the situation that you're in, right? I want to show you a photo of a bridge in Pensacola. This is I-10 in Pensacola, just a little side story. On the top of this bridge when I was 19 years old, I was seeking the baptism of the Spirit, and I was filled with the Spirit by myself in my car on the top of this bridge. But in the midst of this storm, what had happened is that there were some people, whether or not they didn't hear the instructions or whether or not they didn't heed the instructions, I don't know. But there were some people that did not obey the instructions, and they found themselves in the midst of this Category 3, Category 4 hurricane on this bridge in the middle of the storm. As you can see, some of those sections, I mean, these, are, these weigh tens of tons, every single section of pure concrete. And some of those sections you can see were shifted. And basically what had happened is that when the storm came in, that it came in with such ferocity and which, with such power and so quickly that, that the waters, the surge kind of shifted some of those segments away. But you can see the segments that are missing. And basically what they tell us happened is that the water came in so powerfully, it rose so quickly that it literally, like Legos, just lifted those segments and dropped them into the water. And unfortunately, there were some people that found themselves in the midst of this bridge in the middle of the storm, and it ended up costing them greatly. Now, I say all that as a metaphor to say that I think if many of us are honest, we have found ourselves in the past few years in a situation where we don't know really what's going on. Like in the world or in our nation or even individually, I think that there has been so much that is unprecedented, so much that, that we can't really articulate. We, sometimes we can't even discern, is this God, is this the devil, did somebody else? We're, we're searching for answers. And I think that many people have gotten to a place where they don't understand what's going on and so there's like this paralyzing fear. And instead of continuing to live life, we're, we're just stuck, and we're just stuck in this mode of existence. And I think what Noah offers for us is some answers. I think Noah, I mean, I mean, consider this, Noah finds himself in a wicked culture. We find ourselves in a wicked culture. Noah finds himself in a place where unprecedented things are, are happening. I mean, there are some scholars that would say that up to that point for 1,500 years that it had never even rained before because the Lord said in the beginning that he created dew to come up from the surface of the ground. Now, we don't know if that's true or not, but I'm just saying between the flood, between an ark, between righteousness and wickedness, there's a lot of stuff that's going on in Noah's life that I'm sure he doesn't exactly know how to deal with. And so I think what we can do is we can look at the life of Noah and we can better understand not only what Noah was thinking, 
but I think we can under, better understand the culture, like what was going on contextually with, between wickedness and righteousness. But I think it also can give us a glimpse into the heart of God when we just see a situation pop on the screen that reveals that God has utterly destroyed almost everything that he has created. And so to better understand that and to better make application of things that we can learn from the life of Noah, um, we need to dig in a little bit more contextually, okay? And so, so I want to do that right before we get, we got, I got like 10 life lessons I want to share with you about what to do when waters begin to rise. But, but I think there are, some, there are some pre-questions that we need to ask. So for example, number one, I think the question that we have to ask is what in the world was wrong with their world that would cause God to bring this level of severe judgment to his people? Okay? And I think, I think that there, there are two answers. I think it's a twofold answer to that question. Number one, I believe the answer is there was sin. And when I say sin, I'm talking about sin in the most general sense. I'm saying from the events of the Garden of Eden 1,500 years beforehand, when Adam and Eve had eaten of the forbidden fruit, and they had allowed sin to enter the world, it didn't just enter the world and break all of creation, but it entered them, and it broke them. And every child that they would have from that moment moving forward, it would be coursing through their veins, the sinful nature. And so you would have this sin nature that is not only just in a sense broken creation, but you've got this sin that lives inside of people. And it's almost that you can see throughout the book of Genesis that the sin is picking up momentum, that it's becoming more frequent, that it's becoming more violent, that it's becoming more active. So in the most general sense, I think we can answer what was wrong with the world. It's the same thing that's wrong with the world today. There's sin, right? This is the reason that, you know, your, your kids when they're little and you say, don't touch that, it's the reason they touch it, because they're little sinners, all right? It's, it's that nature that permeated the whole world of Noah's day. But it wasn't just that there was sin. The second part of that is that there was sinning. And so sin taken further is not just this general sense that we're all broken, we're all compromised, Sinning, when I say that, I'm talking about the practice, the active pursuit, the celebration of sin. When we find Noah's world, we find murder rampant. We find, we find violence. The, the most common thing that the Lord speaks to about the sin of the people in this era is, is their violence that is just raging and out of control. There's sexual immorality, there's drunkenness, there's pride, there's the, the, the pursuit of all types of evil, materialism. It's all this kind of stuff, right? This is where Noah finds himself. It reminds me of a, a, a story I heard one time about in the, uh, in the 1800s, there was a, a famous Christian book that, that had been written and um, it had gone national, maybe even international, but definitely national. And the title of the book was called Seekers of God. And on the West Coast, the author was, was living, and everywhere he went, people were asking him, we need more copies of Seekers of God. And so he couldn't find any, so he wrote his publishing company 
in New York, and he said, you know, he sent him a telegraph, and he said, listen, we need more seekers of God. The people in New York telegraph him back, and this is simply what they say. No seekers of God in New York. Try Philadelphia. Right? Okay. Noah could have looked and said, no seekers of God in the world. It was that depraved and that dark and that filled with the stench of sin. And when we, as modern-day Americans, as modern-day Christians, when we look at the events that were transpiring in the life of Noah and in his generation, it is a, a sobering mirror image of what we see in our world today. Rampant, unrepentant, unremorseful, sinful living. Utter rebellion against God our creator. And so the second question is this. If we understand what was wrong with the world, what was God's response to all this? Well, scripture tells us the first response of God was hurt. God sensed emotional pain. As scripture says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, the Bible says that the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And listen to this. It grieved him to his heart. Now, that word regretted, that little phrase, the Lord regretted making man, um, it doesn't mean the same thing as when you say you regret something, right? So I may say, uh, oh, man, I regret eating Mexican food last night. And what I'm saying is I wish I would have never eaten Mexican food last night because of the end result, okay? When God says he regrets something, it doesn't mean that he made a mistake and he wished he had a do-over. That's not what he's saying. The word regret there is better translated that God was sorry that humanity chose the path of the Canaanites as opposed to the path of the Sethites, right? And so we, we find in this, in this one verse of Scripture, we find a God that is not some distant, uh, you know, deity that is so removed from humanity, uh, not a God who is just kind of wound up creation and let her run amok and he doesn't know what she's going to do. Uh, that is horrible theology. That leads to a, an open theology that says God doesn't know the future and therefore he regretted what had happened. He wished he could have done it differently. That is not our God. God is all-knowing, past, present, and future. He is, he is, if this were a capsule of time and space, God is here outside of time and space and he knows everything that has, is, and will ever happen. God is all-knowing. He's all-powerful. And so in this text, what we get is not only a God who, who knows all things, but we tap into the emotion of God. We tap into this God who is moved with compassion. And he's grieved to the uttermost part of his soul that the creation has gone awry, that they have chosen to rebel against him. We tap into a God who cares and he cares enough that it would be better to bring destruction than to allow it to go on. And so the first response that we have from God is emotional pain. The second response we have from God is mercy. 
And not just mercy, but patient mercy. You gotta remember when, when Cain begins his slaughter of Abel and then perpetuates to go out and to create a civilization of wickedness. 1,500 years had lapsed between that moment and the flood. And so God was patient and God was tolerant and God was wooing and calling people to himself. As a matter of fact, the last 120 years as Noah is building this ark for over a century. The Bible says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was declaring the goodness of God and calling people to repentance, but they just would not hear it. And ultimately, as it is with God's dealings with humanity, there is a time when when the mercy and the patience and the tolerance of God is exhausted. And in that moment, when the exhaustion of mercy ends, the judgment of God begins. And so the third and final response that we have from God is cleansing. He knew that this wasn't going to end well if he let it go, and it'd be better just to cleanse things and to begin again. And so what we find when we talk about hardship or when we talk about difficulty that we're going to talk about today I want to I wanna, um, just remind I said there are three very general types of hardship or difficulty that, that people go through. Okay, very general. You can get more specific, but generally speaking. Number one is what we call human hardship. This is the idea that because sin has entered the world, um, we are now vulnerable to sicknesses. Um, we got to contend with volcanoes and hurricanes. Um, there is death. That there is a relational struggle that we go to. We are vulnerable to spiritual attack. So there is just human hardship that, that we just suffer through because we're humans. The second layer of, of difficulty is what we call divine discipline. And this is the idea that, that when the children of God begin to go awry, that God in his tender, loving graciousness comes and he corrects us. And sometimes, even though it is kind and gracious, it feels difficult and it feels tough and it feels frustrating, but it's the mercy of God doing that. The third layer that we have is what we call justified judgment. And this is the idea that as the mercy of God is exhausted and the judgment of God begins, that the judgment of God is not some petulant uh, mood swing that God has. He wakes up one day, I've tolerated this for a thousand years, off with their heads. It's not the idea. The idea is that God is filled with justice, and therefore he cannot allow sin to carry on. There must be a moment where justice is made clean, and that comes through the judgment of God, but it's not some wild, uncontrollable emotion. It is a controlled fury. It's a controlled, a calculated judgment that God sends. And listen to me say this. Listen to me. This helped me understand the heart of God almost as much as any other thing that I've ever studied with God. You realize that even when God begins to execute judgment on on nations or or the planet or people, in the midst of that judgment, God continues to act mercifully. Do you remember Pharaoh in Egypt? God raises up Moses, the man of God, to deliver the people 
the Hebrew people after 400 years of slavery. At a certain point, the mercy of God is just done with, with Pharaoh's hardness of heart. And so God comes in and he says, listen, I'm going to execute judgments on the land of Egypt and on Pharaoh himself. And so God steps in and he performs a judgment. But if you notice in scripture, after that judgment, what's he do? He pulls back. And then he gives Pharaoh an opportunity to repent, to respond in the most appropriate way. And then when Pharaoh refuses, he then again comes with a second judgment and then he pulls back. Now he's given the people of Egypt to make a good decision. And when they refuse, he then comes. And ten different times, God is resistant to pour out his judgment. He's wanting mercy. He's wanting peace. He's wanting repentance. He's wanting relationship. Even in the book of Revelation, if we understand, you know, the the tribulation judgments that come, if you'll notice in your study, as you see a judgment poured out, God pulls back and there's a reprieve. And then the judgment of God is poured out again and then there's a reprieve. And these reprieves are only opportunities for people to turn and to do what's right before the eyes of the living God. And so God's response, although seemingly harsh, seemingly confusing, when you truly dig in and you realize that this was an incredibly emotional thing for a God whose name is justice, and it had to be done. You begin to see things a little bit differently in that context. And so the question is simply this. What do we do when waters begin to rise? So whether that's, whether, whether that's the judgment of God or discipline or whether it's just normal hardship, regardless of all that, everything that I'm going to say, these principles that we pull from the life of Noah, they apply. They're applicable to whatever type of hardship that uh, you may experience in this life. They're all applicable. And so, number one, let's just go ahead and jump in. Noah, what we learned from him is that Noah pledged his life to the Lord. Genesis 6-9 says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Now, the word blameless doesn't mean that, that Noah... Was, was sinless. The only sinless person to ever walk the face of the planet was Jesus Christ. So he wasn't sinless, but what it means to be blameless is that he was filled with integrity. He stood head and shoulders above anybody else in his entire generation because he was filled with character, he was filled with integrity. Over 50 times in scripture, in nine different books of the Bible, Mo, uh, Noah is spoken of. And do you realize almost every single time that Noah is spoken of in Scripture, it almost always is connected to his obedience and to his faithfulness to the Lord his God. And so what this does is it serves as a reminder for us that regardless of all the cultures and the ethnicities and the likes and the dislikes that we may experience in this life, That when it comes down to it at the end of the day, there are really only two types of people that live in this world. There are Canaanites and there are Sethites. There are the godly and there are the wicked. There are sinners and there are saints. There are those who flee from the presence of God and those who flock to the presence of God. But there's nothing in between. And this is why scripture would remind us Choose this day whom you will serve. Listen, 
what you don't want to do, you don't want to start, you don't, you don't want to wait till it starts raining to make a decision. Is that, is that really a decision? No, that's a forced decision. But is that really a decision? No, 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 no. That's not a decision. The decision to choose today that I will be wholly committed, my life will be pledged to the Lord my God. And listen to me say this as, as gently as I can. In, in, in the Western world, we live in an era of time that is filled with what I call cultural Christianity. It's a Christianity that doesn't require repentance and it doesn't require remorse and it doesn't require righteousness. It just simply requires raise your hand and repeat after me, right? And so what I want to just simply communicate today is this about this, this one thing of committing ourselves wholly to the Lord is this, is that although I know there are hundreds of thousands of incredible churches that, that stick to what Scripture says and their standard is the Scripture, I want to remind us that not every church and every preacher does. And we have got to be a people who don't just listen to what somebody says that sounds good and makes us feel good. Our standard has to be the Scripture. Our standard is not, well, what do they say I need to do to be a Christian? We look to Scripture. And what we find in Scripture is Jesus not saying, raise your hand and repeat after me. And I give that altar call all the time. I'm not complaining. That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying this, that it's far more than that. It's far more than that. Jesus would call people unto himself. But then he would say, listen, if you're going to follow me, and he always gave the option. If you're going to follow me, come on, but pick up that cross. Follow after me, and don't just follow after me, die after me, right? And, and listen, I know, listen, that, that rubs me wrong. I mean, that, I'm just like, oh, no, I don't like that at all, you know? But the reality is, is that I've got to remove my emotion from the situation. I've got to understand that there is a God supreme, and I am not, he, I don't bend him to my will. I've been to his will, Amen. right? Amen. And, and listen to me. The reason that God is doing, the reason that God desires the whole of us is because God from the beginning forever and always, he has been trying to create a distinct culture within a wicked culture. From the very beginning, the, the Ten Commandments, they, I mean, they were the moral law of God, and, and we need to abide by those Ten Commandments. Uh, but, but besides from that, part of the purpose of the Ten Commandments was so that God's people would be different. It's so that God's people would be distinct from the other cultures. The Sabbath especially, that you're to take a day and to, to rest from work as a mirror image of what God did after creation. That wasn't just for rest. It wasn't just to honor God. It was also to create a people that were wholly different from the people of the rest of the world. Listen to me say this. God is still after that. You know that, that, that in the culture, listen to me, and you know this, we, we live in a wicked culture. It just is what it is. But God in the midst of a wicked culture is still trying to create a culture of holiness. He's still calling people to live righteously, to walk with him just as Enoch and Noah would do, to walk with him and to, to sup with him, to dine with him, to be different and distinct than the rest of the world. And so when we find ourselves in a situation where we don't know what to do, listen to me say this, the best thing that we can do 
is reaffirm our pledge to the Lord. To reaffirm our commitment that he is Lord over all, even when I feel paralyzed and stuck. He's got to be Lord. Number two, when we find ourselves in a situation we don't understand, especially in a compromised culture, we have to be a people who are willing to protest against wrong beliefs and proclaim right beliefs. All right? Now listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slow down just a minute because I need to make sure I don't say anything that can be misinterpreted. Peter says in his second epistle that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. As you and I are set in a wicked culture today, God has set is, us here as representatives, as ambassadors of his kingdom in a dark kingdom. And if we have learned anything over these past few years, we have learned that there is very little room for cowardly Christianity. Listen to me. The culture won't tolerate it. The culture no longer tolerates gray areas. The culture demands that you pick a side. And listen to me. I think that we need to pick sides. And I'm not talking politically. I'm saying spiritually speaking, we've got to stand for righteousness. And, and listen to me. I've got great and, and dear um, friends who, who lead churches are in, in incredible men of God and women of God and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, their, their mantra at their church is, well, listen, we want to be known for what we're for, not what we're against. And I understand what they're saying. And I've got, I do got issue with it. But I understand what they're saying. Okay? I understand what they're saying. But I want to remind us that even Jesus himself didn't find himself in a neutral point. He spoke about what he was for emphatically and often. But he also spoke for what he was against. And we have to find ourselves in a place where we are willing to do this. Now, the trouble is, in the South, and I say that being from from Florida, I've had ministry all over the Southeast. I think the trouble is, is that most people in the South are dadgum willing to say where they stand, right? The trouble is, is that what God has called us to is not just to let people know where we stand about things, but to let people know in an honorable way, right? Listen, there is a difference between being obnoxious and being honorable, right? And, and, and listen to me. We don't take our cues from the culture. We don't, we, don't, we don't respond to the culture in the way that they initiate an attack on the church. We are people that respond appropriately. We respond differently. And I'm just going to say this. If the church needs anything in, in the Western Hemisphere, if we need anything today, we need discernment. Not just to understand, you know, the times and what we should do. We need to understand that. But we need discernment of when should I speak and when should I not. And when I do speak, what should I say and what should I refrain from saying? Because I'm afraid over the past few years, what we've done is we have met the fury of the culture with the fury of our convictions. We've met dishonor with dishonor. And Christians, the response, our response has never been a one-to-one -one ratio. Never. Have you, have you ever had to have a one-to-one -one ratio with your spouse in an argument? 
How's that going? No, right? So your wife comes in with a certain tone, right? And then you kind of like, I don't know what's going on with her. So you match that tone. One for one. What happens next? Whoop. That tone goes to another level. One-to-one ratio, matched. The problem is at some point, you're either going to find yourself in an eternal struggle against what you perceive as good and evil, or one of you just going to have to humble yourselves and say, you know what, I'm not going to respond to the way that you've spoken to me. Jesus would say it like this. He'd say, listen, he said, remember, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You know, what our, you know what our nation needs right now? They need a bunch of Christians who will hit their knees and pray for their enemies. Because I'm going to tell you what, Christian, we got a lot of enemies. The spirit of Antichrist is alive and well. There's no way to contend with that in the flesh. It's only done in the spirit realm. And I want to remind us today that we have to be people that pray for our enemies. Those politicians who were trying to bring perversion to the ears of your children, do you need to protest that? You're daggum right you need to protest it, okay, in the right way, but let me just say this. But you know what we need to do more? We need to pray for them. We need to pray for a sweeping move of the Spirit to touch their souls for the repentance of their lives and then in turn that the wisdom of the Holy Spirit would fill them and they would be given the gift of leadership to lead our nation in a better way. We desperately need prayers for our enemies. Number three, we have got to pull together with like-minded and godly people just as Noah did with his family. The only thing I'm going to say about this very quickly is that the further we go down this road, the more vital it's going to become for you to not only be a part of a Bible-believing church, but to be invested in that spiritual family. And listen to me say this with all of my heart. That may not mean Christian life, and that's okay. With all of my heart, that's okay. But the more that we go down this trajectory the more vital it's going to become for your soul and the souls of your family that you find yourself in a healthy place spiritually where you are surrounded by men and women of God who trust the word of God and they believe that the spirit of God is working for them. Number four, when you don't know what to do and waters begin to rise, you got to plan for your future. Listen, Genesis 6, the Lord gives incredible detail for what, how Noah should plan out the rest of his life. Uh, not only with, with the construction of the ark, but even, you know, the, the animals and the food and how we're going to repopulate afterwards and how many, uh, you know, uh, uh, and winged animals are you going to send out and how many sacrifices are you going to make. All of this stuff, provision was made, but the provision didn't come without a plan. And I'm just going to, I'm going to be super honest with you. I believe, and, and you can disagree and that's okay, but I believe that, that on some level, our nation, our world maybe even, but our nation is experiencing the beginnings of a judgment. I, I believe, and it's okay if you don't believe that. I know that's kind of subjective. But let me just tell you this. I'm not going to find myself paralyzed. 
I'm going to keep raising my babies. I'm going to finish my education. I'm going to take my son who is, um, who is, you know, three or four years away from approaching his college years, and we're going to make a plan for him to go to university if that's what's in his heart, right? Uh, we're going to, we, we moved our family um, uh, just a few weeks ago. Uh, we sold our house, and we moved our 84 children into a 1,200-square-foot apartment, <laughs> right? And we're trying to, we're building a home right over here in, in, in Irmo, and I'm so thankful, but let me tell you what. It's a scary time to lean into the future. It's scary. Listen, I, I'm, dude, two weeks after we sold the house, right, what are we looking at? Uh, uh, potential World War III, okay, uh, inflation out the wazoo, gas jumped like $14 a gallon, you know what I'm saying? All of this stuff, and I looked at my life, I was like, we're so crazy. Like, what did, we, what did we do? What did we do? And it was this paralyzing fear. But I made a decision in that moment. I said, no. You know why? Because I can trace the steps that God has led me up to this point to lean into the future. And listen to me say this. Listen, I refuse. I refuse. I refuse to give in to fear. Fear is not a tactic of heaven. It is a tactic of hell. And I refuse. Listen to me. And I have struggled. These past few years, I have struggled in the depths of my soul, but I refuse to give in to hopelessness and anxieties about things that are completely beyond my control. I'm going to lean into the future, and I'm going to plan, and I'm going to do, and I'm going to go. And let me tell you what, I know it's difficult, and it's a struggle to do that, but listen to me say this. Our babies and our grandbabies need to see somebody leaning into the future. I don't know if you've done much study about what younger generations are going through emotionally and mentally. And I'm going to tell you this. I know that mental health is kind of like uh, uh, catching right now. And I look at some situation, I'm like, okay, that's mental health. It's really not. But, but, but listen to me say this. There is an incredible portion of younger generations, and listen to me say this, who have, who have gone through some things that have been so incredibly traumatic Listen, we as adults struggled going through it. Them as children, can you imagine? And so they don't need to look at, 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 at leaders and say, well, I guess we just sit tight and we stay paralyzed. They need to see people that are saying, no, baby, let's plan. Let's step in. Let's go forth. Why? Listen to me, but because regardless of the difficulty, there's still destiny. There's still destiny. There's still purpose. There's still an execution of the plan of God for your life. I know it's a struggle, but my Lord, he destined you and me and our children to live in this era. And if, there, if, if he has destined it for us, listen, there's a reason. There's a reason. There's a purpose in it. And we've got to be a people who lean into it. I'm not saying be reckless and like, Oh, well, i got to lean in the future. I'm going to get a Maserati. And, you know, I'm not saying be reckless. Be wise, but don't be afraid. Be, be meticulous, but don't be scared. Lean in and go for what the Lord has set in your heart and watch him do an incredible thing. Number five, halfway through and have no time left. Number five. We need to prepare for the worst and hope for the best, just as Noah did. But let me, let me throw us back a little bit beyond Noah. Let's go back to Enoch. In, in 
in my circles, we have usually looked at Enoch kind of as a foreshadowing of the rapture, right? So Enoch walked with God, and before the judgment of God came, God took Enoch. And what we usually do is we say, well, that's the way it's going to be before the tribulation. Those who walk with God are going to be taken before the judgment of God, and I hope that's true. I hope that's true. But what if it's not? What if we go through more than what we could, could have ever imagined? And I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm saying, but, but there is possibility here. And we have got to be a people that understand that, that godliness does not automatically remove us from difficulty. It's not preservation from struggle. Listen, Enoch was saved from the flood, and that's awesome. I want to be saved from it. But Noah, who equally walked with God, was saved through the flood. We've got to make sure that our expectations of God are biblical expectations. Not things that we hope God will do or we feel like God should do, but we've got to take a step back and we've got to place expectations of God that are found in Scripture. Sometimes God doesn't remove his people from trouble. Sometimes he puts them there to be salt and light. And so for the person that always has this expectation that God will never allow trouble, when they find themselves in trouble, they're disappointed with the Lord as if he has done something wrong. That's not God's bad. That's us not pre- putting proper biblical expectations on the Lord. And we've got to make sure we do that. Number six, we've got to practice the presence of the Lord. Amen. There's nothing more to say. We've got to practice the presence of the Lord. We can't wait for waters to rise to have a prayer life. We've got to, before, during, and after difficulty, to be in the lap of the Lord looking for sustenance. Number seven, we've got to protect and pass on what God has given to us. If you look back in Noah's lineage, you have a general generational transfer of godliness. From Enoch, you see that godliness transferred to Methuselah, and from Methuselah to Lamech, and from Lamech to Noah, and from Noah to his sons. And I just want to say that our children and our grandchildren, and for some of us, our great-grandchildren, they have been entrusted to us to not only protect them, and we should protect them, but to pass on what has been given to us. And I'm not talking about material inheritance. I'm talking about spiritual impartation. Paul would speak to Timothy and say, say, Timothy, it's because of your mother and your grandmother. What they have imparted to you is the reason you are who you are today. And never forget that. And we've got to be a people that are willing to sit with our children and have spiritual conversations. Listen to me. Conversations that we don't have the answers to. And we've got to be 
big enough to say, I don't know, but I'm going to do my best to find out. We've got to have difficult conversations with our children about difficult cultural and moral issues of this day. Because listen to me, our kids are being raised in an alien world. They are being raised in a world that you and I never touched growing up. And we cannot just sit back and talk about how bad it is. We've got to step in and we've got to give spiritual support so our kids can be all that God has called them to be. Number eight, as Noah waited patiently for salvation, we must wait patiently for salvation. Noah and his family were on this boat for over a year. And though they couldn't see it, though they could not see it, five different times in chapter eight, the Bible says, but then the waters receded. And then the waters receded. And then the waters receded. And I just want to remind us that regardless of the trouble and the difficulty, as pastor always reminds us so brilliantly, when we can't see God's hand, we can trust God's heart. And again, as pastor has reminded us, listen to me, it's not always going to be like this. It's not always going to be, you're not perpetually going to live in difficulty. But let me just say this, even if you did, and even if the difficulty took your life, there is still a greater salvation that we look towards. John, the revelator, would say this, Jesus spoke to me and he said, behold, I am making all things new. Regardless of what this world looks like, and regardless of the effect that it has on me, I patiently wait for salvation, yes, in this life, and I believe that God is the great deliverer. I believe that. But there is a far greater deliverance that's coming. We've got to set our eyes on the things of heaven and not just on the things of earth. Number nine, we've got to properly process the issues of the heart. In chapter nine, this is the first and the only time that we find Noah not doing right. Scripture says that he plants a vineyard, he ends up drunk, and he ends up naked inside of his tent. And listen to me, I'm not trying to make excuses for sin, but I am going to say this, you and I have no idea the trauma that Noah and his family had just gone through. They had watched the destruction, not only of the human race, but every species and every landmass they had ever set foot on. And they listened to the cries of grown men asking to come on the ark and be saved. And they listened to cries of mama saying, please just take my baby and save my baby. And they had to go through the stench of death of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that floated on those waters for days at a time. And I'm telling you this, we were not made for that kind of trauma. And I'm not making excuses for Noah. He should have done it different. He should have processed differently. But I will say this, that we must be a people that when we go through difficulty, we keep our hearts before the Lord. Listen, and I'm not just talking about like before, and I'm not just talking about during. Because sometimes the difficulty is so great in the midst of it that, that it's like even when you go to be with God, you can't, you just can't because your mind is just, your emotions are all over the place. 
That's why the, the before is so important. But let me just say this, even after difficulty is perhaps the most important time for us to keep our hearts before the Lord. You remember Elijah. He has this enormous confrontation, this contest between him and hundreds of other prophets. And God dramatically shows up and destroys these prophets. Elijah, even after an enormous victory like that, that was still a difficulty for him. So much so that after the victory is secured, where do we find Elijah? He's in a cave alone asking God to kill him. Why? He didn't process the things of his heart well up to that point. And I think that we have to be a people that realize that there are some times where we do have to tap into that place that we don't want anybody to see. I'm not saying we got to live there. I'm just saying that when we go through significant difficulty, that there are times where we need assistance to be made whole again. And God, I know it's spiritual to say, well, the Lord will do that for me. And yes, he will. But God has also given us his church to assist in the healing when we go through such things. And then finally, number 10, and I'm done. Number 10 is this, is that we must perpetually fix our eyes on Jesus. Why? Because his eyes are perpetually fixed on us. Genesis 8, after all said and done, the scripture says, but God remembered Noah. I mean, it wasn't that God was like over here in heaven, you know, dealing with rowdy angels, and he's like, you guys settled it. Oh, Noah! God's all-knowing. He doesn't forget. This is a reminder. It's a nod to us. It's a reminder that he always remembers, that he always watches, that he always sees, that he's always near. I'm going to ask you to stand with me uh, this morning. We're going to go ahead and close. I'm going to ask our ministry team really quickly to come into place. Last year, one of my daughters, um, Ella, she went through this three or four month period where she was having the most awful, horrendous nightmares at night. And it was like three or four nights every single week for, for a few months. And one particular night, um, she, she woke up and she's screaming out for me. And, and so I run in there and um, I grab her, you know. And, and I'm trying to wake her. Baby, daddy's here. You're okay. You're okay. I'm trying to wake her. And for whatever reason, she, I could not wake her. I could not wake her. It was almost like she was stuck in that dream, and I couldn't shake her out of it. And so I tried, and I tried, and I tried, and so finally I, I picked her up. And, and she's long now. I mean, she's, she's going to be a tall girl. But I picked her up, and I just I held her, and, and I was still trying to wake her, but I just kept reminding her, baby, daddy's here. I was praying for her. I said, babe, I'm not going to. You're fine. I'm, I'm going to take care of you. You're fine, you know. But it's almost as if... She was so stuck in that dream that she didn't even know I existed in that moment. It's like 
It's like it didn't matter if I was consoling her. It didn't matter if I was holding her. It didn't matter how close I was because in her consciousness, I wasn't there. But the whole time, I was there. And I was holding her. I was watching her. And I was going to do everything in my power to keep her safe. And that serves as a reminder for me that in, that in dark moments, especially in dark moments where it feels like the God of the universe is absent. It feels like I can't sense him. Does he care? Is he near? Is he anywhere? It served as a reminder to me that although I may be in this moment where I feel like I'm stuck and I can't see God and I can't feel God, I, can't try, I just don't know what to do because he doesn't see, he seems vacant. It's a reminder to me that he's here that he's still Emmanuel, that he's still God with us, that he still stands by the promise that I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And nothing that happens to you is beyond my control. And I'm going to care for my children. It's a good reminder for us. Father, this morning, I pray that that eternal truth of your nearness would penetrate every one of our hearts this morning. Help us to understand it. Help our faith to be ignited to believe it, even when we don't feel it. And I want to pray for all of us as a church, but also as individuals. I want to pray for us, God, as we go through um, the season of living, the season of our nation, the season even individually, different things that are going on. And I just want to pray for the sustaining grace of God to take root in our lives. Teach us to heed the life of Noah, to pay attention to the principles, to draw near to you because you promised then you draw near to us. And remind us that regardless of what's going on, your covering is about us and you're always near. So I pray for your blessing. I pray for your help in Jesus' name. This morning, we're going to open up the altars if you need. I know we're late on time, but if you need prayer, if you just want to come and rest in the Lord's presence. If you're watching online, thank you for being here. We have a number on the screen. We have some ladies that are just waiting to pray with you and to talk with you. But we love you so much. God bless you. We will see you Wednesday, if not next Sunday.